Hey everyone, this is Ryan Willoughby here with the A Hand Up podcast. Today's interview is with Mr. Dan Emmergluck. Dan is an accomplished scholar in the field of housing policy and has a list of publications on that subject which is a mile long. He is without a doubt one of the foremost thought leaders related to housing affordability here in the state of Georgia. And he was kind enough to sit down and impart to us some of his insight. You're going to really enjoy hearing what Dan has to say. Sit back, get ready to learn a ton about housing policy in just a little bit of time. Dan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Ryan. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I, I love following you on Twitter. Uh, I love the work that you're doing in the housing space. And so um, I'm, I'm honored that you're taking the time to, to sit down and chat with us today about housing issues. Sure. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, um, you know, before we kind of dig down into the meat of things, you know, for those who who aren't familiar with your work, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself to us. I mean, you're a distinguished professor. You're at the Urban uh, Studies Institute there at GSU, and you've, you've got a number of publications to your name. Can you just, uh, you know, tell folks who Dan Amberluck is? Sure. Um, as you say, I'm at Georgia State uh, in Atlanta. I've been at Georgia State for about four years as a professor. Before that, I was at Georgia Tech for 12, for 12 years. So I've been in Georgia for a good bit. Also spent time in the Midwest, Michigan and Chicago. Um, and yeah, in the la- over the last 20 years or so, I've been a full-time academic, but very applied policy-oriented researcher um, and teacher. Um, Before that, though, I spent about a dozen years doing community and economic development, including both uh, community development practice, uh, community development-based real estate development, and uh, housing and uh, mortgage lending advocacy in Chicago and some work in Ohio. So I started as a practitioner um, and then got my PhD, did more work, and then moved into academics. And I do a lot of work around housing, affordable housing, uh, housing stability. Right now, obviously, evictions and housing stability are a big issue. Ten years ago, I was doing a lot of work around foreclosures, um, wrote a couple books on the foreclosure crisis and the response to it um, really uh, across the country. I've also done work on issues around uh, vacant properties, uh, which is an issue in several communities around Georgia and kind of repurposing those properties, issues around gentrification in cities mostly, um, and kind of housing stability, issues around segregation, uh, and issues around things like the low-income housing tax credit and various housing programs. Since uh, that kind of leads to my first question, and this is a big, broad-based question, um, housing right now in America, and it's uh, and not not just in Georgia, it's around. T- t- tell me what you're seeing out there. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I know it's kind of a broad question, but no, it's it's a uh, it's it's it is broad and big, but it's an important question. Um, you know, we have had a housing crisis before COVID hit and COVID kind of punctuated that crisis. It kind of accelerated the crisis, uh, especially in some communities, but in many communities, um, we're seeing 
rent increases, which were already, you know, kind of steady or high in many places in Georgia, um, increase Atlanta just Atlanta Metro just made a list of the top 10 fastest increasing rents in the country um, by Metro. Uh, we're seeing uh, investors buy older apartment buildings and, you know, turn them into higher rent apartment buildings. And I think that's going to accelerate, um, especially with smaller and older buildings as those landlords uh, have cash flow issues and, you know, you know, have gone through some significant issues during COVID. Um, and then on the homeownership side, of course, in, in Metro Atlanta, at least we've seen, and I think in, in several cities across the state, we've seen an accelerated uptick in housing prices, credit markets tightening a bit. You know, we, we had these very tight credit markets coming out of the foreclosure crisis. And over time, um, they were starting to loosen after about 2016, 2017. And by 2019, they, were, they weren't, you know, access to credit was still an issue, but it was better than it had been. And it wasn't too loose. You know, we didn't have a lot of subprime lending or a lot of irresponsible subprime lending. But then COVID hit and, you know, basically credit requirements ratcheted down again. Um, and we saw, you know, a lot of demand at the high end of the market from people with very high credit scores and lots of cash to put down on houses. Um, and in fact, a lot of cash buying, right? Um, but folks, uh, you know, who need the low down payments, who have, you know, more typical kind of credit scores of low and moderate income folks. Not, I'm not talking about people with bad credit, just people with, you know, credit scores in the 600s. Uh, those folks really found it harder to get credit. Uh, lenders pulled back again. So, and then prices went up so much that that makes the down payments, you know, harder to, to come up with. And, and you know, uh, people who either have cash or have access to, you know, easy mortgages, uh, jumbo mortgages and the like, um, you know, that that becomes a real issue. So I think, you know, we've seen definitely a decline in purchase money mortgages at the lower end. And at the same time, rents are going up, right? So people are seeing... Uh, there, you know, what I say to folks is homeownership may not be the best system, but in many parts of the country, it beats rental, um, at least in the private market. Uh, and as rents go up, you know, you really want to provide people who have at least a little bit of money for a down payment to be able to buy a house so that they don't face increasing rents every year right? I mean, fixed rate mortgages are a great way to get out of the, you know, what we're seeing right now is right now we're seeing, you know, uh, rent increases of well over 10% in Metro Atlanta um, per year. So, um, you know, not having access to as much access to mortgages keeps people in that kind of increasing rent trap, which means they can't save for a mortgage, right? So 
it, it really is uh, rising costs and rising rents at the same time are kind of a double whammy. Um, tighter credit markets, you know, we're not back to where we were in 2011, but we're still tighter than we were a couple of years ago. So that's problematic. Um, and then the loss of, and I, you know, I haven't studied directly kind of the rural markets or the kind of smaller cities, but I'm going to guess that that's going to be a significant problem there too, as these national, um, you know, kind of private equity. And, and sometimes they're not huge companies, but they're looking to buy up a lot of property. And there's a lot of cash sitting out there right now, right? That's looking for higher returns. So, you know, I just think a lot of properties may be purchased. And what we do know is when properties are purchased, a couple things happen. One is evictions go up uh, either right before the sale or after the sale depending on the strategy that's used. And then the other thing that happens is rents go up. Um, so, you know, losing this kind of, uh, most, most of it's gonna be unsubsidized, but lower cost stock, um, that's, that's a big deal because, you know, most people who are able to find affordable rents are actually not renting in subsidized properties. They're renting in, older properties. So I think from an affordable housing perspective, that means there needs to be strategies to try to capture some of those properties before they're sold, to try to um, bring subsidies to bear on those properties, uh, to bring in maybe more national resources to enable that to happen. And, you know, there may be resources and capacity to do this in some places of the state and not others. And so we need maybe national partners who can do this. Um, and I think that's, that's an area that really needs to be pushed that, you know, some kind of, some of the larger scale low-income housing investment fund, uh, some of the kind of larger nonprofit uh, housing developers, Mercy Housing, those folks, I think, need to think about raising capital, raising subsidy to branch out into more locations. Yeah. So, you know, what, what you described there is, I like how at the beginning you said that we, we had a housing crisis prior to COVID, right? Yes. I mean, it is one that nobody knew about, but it, you said that it's been punctuated. And I feel like, for one thing, I'm going to steal that. I really like that, that wording. Um, but you know, what you've described is that we have a really, I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's a broken system, right? I mean, we've got yes. some serious flaws. So I, I'm curious to know, besides the, you know, uh, solutions you just kind of mentioned there, do you, do you see this broken system getting any better as we go forward? Well, you know, um, I was hopeful for a while that there was some momentum towards, a significant, significant expansion of federal housing, affordable housing resources. Um, you know, it's some, some versions of the human infrastructure bill, um, there are significant resources. Whether that is still in there and whether it makes it through, I haven't been able to keep up with all the gyrations 
but at some point there was, you know, a major expansion of vouchers, housing vouchers, um, significant expansions of public housing capital dollars to, you know, basically bring back our public housing stock where it still exists. Uh, um, so uh, that's the kind of thing that needs to be done. Um, I am no expert on the political viability right now of that of that happening. Um, you know, that needed to be done before COVID. And again, COVID has kind of laid bare to the broader public the, you know, the fact that you know, unlike pretty much every other uh, northern industrialized country, we have, uh, you know, we have this lottery-based uh, housing subsidy system that covers a, you know, 25% of the folks who need it, who qualify, and even a smaller share of the people who need it. Um, whereas, you know, if you go to European countries or even Canada, you see much higher shares of folks who have access to affordable housing. Um, and, you know, at least we have a president who has used the term that folks should have a right to housing. Right. Um, I mean, that's a that's an important rhetorical uh, stake that we never had before. But, it, mm -hmm. you know, it it hasn't. The rubber hasn't met the road yet, so I don't want to forecast whether it will. So, so I'm, I'm curious to know about this. So we had Habitat a couple of years ago. We we launched this campaign called The Cost of Home. I don't know if you've yes. heard it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, the real crux of that, I mean, we had four focus areas, but the real, you know, meat and potatoes of what we were trying to do is really to just draw attention to this issue of housing. Because as you said in the your first, your, your introduction there, Let's just be honest. Home ownership is still the number one way people build wealth and break free from poverty in America, yes. period. Yes. And it seems like it just, even though we're a capitalist society, we don't do anything to really address the number one way to build capital, which is, you know, through through the ownership of real property. And I can't help but wonder to myself, what, what do we do, you and I and others out there listening who are advocates for housing? How, how do we get that voice to bring this to the table and say, hey, by golly, this is an issue that has got to be addressed? That's an excellent question. Um, I do think, you know, contacting federal representatives and senators around the human infrastructure bill and saying, there is proposed money. There has been proposed money in there for down payment assistance, which is critical. Um, and uh, so, so I think that's really, really important, uh, providing more down payment assistance um, to particularly folks with less wealth. Um, and that is going to be, you know, if you look at kind of the... The disparities in wealth that's going to be disproportionately, not solely, but disproportionately folks of color. Um, and that that will help address the kind of racial wealth gap that Georgia and other states face. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, you know, the other major provider of down payment assistance, and of course, mortgages are lenders. And um, right now, the federal bank regulators have 
One is fortunately the Office of the Control of the Currency has pulled back on the previous rewrite by the Office of the Controller of the Community Investment Act regulations, which was very poorly done under the previous administration. And the three main regulators have now said, including the Federal Reserve, have now said they want to, they have basically issued a, you know, per, notice of proposed rulemaking to start over. Um, although it's a start over with a, with a head start because the Fed had already put out a, quite a bit of stuff uh, a couple of years ago. And because they couldn't agree with the OCC, they kind of dropped it. So now they're coming back to the table with the FDIC and the OCC. And I think that's very promising. So folks should be paying attention to that. There's public comment, formal public comment on that. Um, if you go to the Federal Reserve's website, you should be able to find that fairly easily um, or the OCC's. Um, but also um, pushing your local banks and savings and loans to do more in terms of providing down payment assistance because down payment assistance is one of the ways, and I know Habitat works with lots of lenders on this kind of thing, um, to beyond what Habitat does directly, uh, to provide more folks with access to down payment assistance because that's the number one barrier. Credit scores and interest rates and access to credit is also very important, but the two interact. The more down payment you can put down, you can qualify for a lower cost mortgage. You might even be able to qualify for a non-FHA mortgage, which would save you money, um, assuming it's a big enough down payment. Um, but also even an FHA mortgage needs, you know, roughly 4% down. And that, you know, as prices go up, that can be a considerable amount of money. Um, so you know, if, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about lower down payments having to be saved. And of course, people's salaries haven't kept up with housing prices. So, so now there's more need for down payment assistance. So I think, you know, and then also banks having uh, mortgage programs that are truly accessible, that they're participating in the FHA program when they can, some banks just don't like to, and that's not terribly helpful. Um, or a, a low down payment Fannie or Freddie program um, that doesn't have, you know, high risk-based premiums, that kind of thing that you don't want. Um, so those are the kinds of things I think people can do on the ground to deal with the, the, the home ownership. And you're right. I mean, people say the federal government favors home ownership sometimes, but it really only favors it for rich people. <laughs> um, because, the, you know, we still have, we have a smaller homeownership deduction than we used to, but it's even more skewed towards wealthy people who don't, uh, who still itemize their mortgage. And that's a smaller and smaller fraction of people. Um, and then on the low income other than CRA, there really is no program. There's no down payment assistance, federal money. Um, and so this would provide, you know, not a huge amount of money, but uh, 
a significant federal source of down payment assistance. And I think that would be that would be extremely important. Um, the other thing that uh, that can be done, though, is state and local resources. Um, there are, you know, the the Department of Community Affairs in Georgia has some affordable housing money, mostly federal money that they allocate, um, and some of that can be used for for down payment assistance. So advocating for that, um, and some local governments have down payment assistance uh, dollars through CDBG or something else. Home monies is the primary one. Um, it, that's a very you know that's becoming a very small source. You know, again, if this federal bill went through, there would be significantly more money. I mean, they're talking about more money for down payment assistance than the entirety of home and CDBG combined. So it would be, you know, it would be a significant, in, significant increase. Yeah, and, and you know, most role places need CDBG to just pave the roads. And, right. You know, right. provide sewer and, right, um, they don't, so they don't have a lot of extra existing federal money right now yeah you know what's what's funny about this and of course not haha -ha funny but yeah. it is the sense of like to me so you mentioned earlier you know you worked for georgia tech for a little while there and we we did a study with georgia tech a couple of years ago and what i what i thought was really the interesting outcome to that was the fact that what we see is that housing touches on pretty much every other social issue that we're trying to address um, health outcomes, education outcomes. I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. Yes. And it does feel kind of as you, I, I think you didn't use this word, but I'm, I'm going to use it. It feels like a lot of times we're talking out of both sides of our mouth as a country, because we, we talk about the importance of, like you said, of home ownership and wealth and, you know, getting people out of poverty. But then it seems like we just do a really poor job of giving attention to the number one way that people build wealth and get out of poverty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't like to pit home ownership versus rental because no, we no. need affordable both. Correct. And, and the key is for people to have options. Mm -hmm. The key is for people to, you know, if they're in a place where they really want to stay and they want to fix their housing costs and they make enough money to buy a house in terms of making a payment, we should give them the home ownership option because even more important than, you know, the wealth building thing is important, but the way, but I don't want people to think the way to do it is by buying a house that's going to appreciate a lot. That's not really the way most people build some wealth with home ownership. Some people do, but the main way is to fix your housing costs. And then, and then over time, your monthly payments are increasingly going to equity, right? And building, it's it's what economists call forced savings. It's building that equity um, instead of the money going, you know, as your grandfather might say, going to the landlord all the time, right? So it's it's a way of, but it's also what, what economists talk about, it's a way of hedging against rental inflation because rents always go up pretty much. You know, even in weaker market times, they still go up some. And then in times like this, they're going up at 10% a year. That is just eating all your save potential savings. 
when your biggest expenditure is going up every month or every year, that eats away at your ability to save. And that's what it's rent increases in rent are wealth depleting. And so we need to offer people an option. Um, but I, of course, we also would like to provide affordable rental for, especially for people who are more mobile, um, who may want to be, you know, not want to be somewhere, don't think they want to be somewhere for more than a few years or don't know. Um, and uh, if it's affordable and especially subsidized rental, then it's another way to fix your housing costs pretty much, right? Your rents might go up a little bit, but they're not at the whim of the landlord. They're fixed to your income usually or to the metropolitan income. And so they're not going to go up a lot. And that's another way to help people build wealth. So affordable rental is can also be wealth building. And over time, people may want to go... People may want to go switch from one to the other. And, you know, that's what we want. We want a robust system. And, you know, basically in most country, advanced countries, the private rental market makes up, oh, somewhere on the order of 40 to 50. 30 to 40 percent of the of, of households and yeah because people have home ownership or they have a and they also have a much larger social housing system rental housing so their choices instead of just being between private market rental and private home ownership they have this third option that isn't available to everyone but it's available to a large portion of low and moderate income folks. And that's social housing. That's basically subsidized housing. And by having that as a bigger choice, you kind of put pressure on the private rental market to be more competitive, to offer lower rents. And so this is why rental housing in places like Tokyo, which is one of the densest cities in the world, is not really more expensive than rental housing in Atlanta, where if you compare a similar dense city in the U.S., San Francisco or New York City, Manhattan, you're talking about rents that are two or three times as high. Um, and that's because the private rental market is so dominant in so many places. Um, so we really need to think about broadening that social housing and and i habitat is a is definitely in that social housing uh, arena through home ownership but through a supported home ownership right so it's kind of a hybrid right um another form is community land trusts right which are a hybrid between kind of affordable housing and home ownership um and we need more hybrids basically. Uh, we need to not have just those two choices, um, but that's going to take resources. Um, but as you say, there is so much evidence. I just co-edited uh, an academic journal issue on evictions. We had about 20 articles. About five of those articles add on 
show all some of the real negative effects of housing instability. So here's another benefit to home ownership, which is, yeah, you can be foreclosed on, but foreclosure is much harder to do than eviction. You know, it, 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 even in Georgia, where it's relatively easier to foreclose, uh, evictions vastly outnumber foreclosures in the U.S., even during regular times. And renters are at much more, uh, you know, at the whim of the landowner, of the property owner, right? Um, if they sell the property, if they decide to jack up the rents, unless you have rent control, which most places don't. Um, so home ownership provides much more stability. And what we know from the special issue is instability measured by evictions or in older literature and instability measured by other kinds of forced moves cause all kinds of problems. They cause problems in health. They cause problems in education uh, of kids. Uh, there's a new article in this journal uh, in this issue on uh, child protective service complaints go up in places with higher evictions, which, you know, housing instability causes tremendous stress. And it that stress, uh, we also can tie uh, eviction, higher evictions to tougher to worse employment outcomes because you know, if you can't say you've been in the same apartment for a year, your prospects for employment get worse. Um, if you have an eviction filing and can show up and back and check, um, all kinds of all kinds of problems. So housing stability has to be raised up as an issue as much as affordability. Right. Um, and the two go together, but they're not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're they're related, but not right. Just, yeah, and you know this, you make such a well, you made several really awesome points that I want to dig into. Um, one one in particular, just to back things up a little bit, because I, I want to unpack this because I know you've done uh, quite a bit of study on uh, particularly housing equity as it pertains to to the racial issues here in in, in America, and you know. When you look at habitat and our our background, I mean, we were founded on that basic idea of that everybody does deserve a decent place to live, and the the fact that for so long in this country, the opportunity just isn't there, particularly for individuals of color and you know communities of color. And I'm curious to know, kind of, what are you seeing unfold in that space right now? Um, as far as more opportunities for them. I mean, we've, we've talked about general opportunities, but at least for this, this group. Yeah, no, it's that? an excellent question. You know, the, the country has a sordid history uh, when it comes to racial disparities and inequalities in terms of access to housing. I mean, we, we, we not only allow racial discrimination to be pervasive, uh, going back to the 19th century and before, we we basically uh, developed programs during the New Deal uh, that legitimized, uh, supported, and 
you know, kind of in, helped institutionalize discrimination and redlining, which, by the way, predated the federal government's role in, in home ownership. But it, it was, so there was redlining before the Federal Housing Administration, before the Home Ownership Loan Corporation. It was done by banks and they didn't have, this, you know, the maps with the colors, but they still didn't lend to certain neighborhoods and they didn't lend to certain people. And then when the FHA came around, who did they hire to write their underwriting manual? They hired Frederick Babcock, who had published clearly discriminatory appraisal manuals for the real estate industry. Um, you know, they took what the real estate industry had done, which was discriminatory, and added federal resources to it. Um, so they, they made things worse, right, um, in terms of disparities. Uh, the FHA did some good things, and I'm much more of a proponent of FHA now than back back then. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a strong case for reparative measures. I'll use that word that, that some people get nervous about, but I believe in it. Um, and we owe it to folks. We we took opportunity to folks. We didn't enforce fair housing laws and fair lending laws. I still think we don't do a good job at that. Um, one good thing I've seen recently is attention to what's called appraisal bias. There's been lots of media reports of kind of clear examples of appraisal bias where you know, a black couple shows their home and they get a certain appraisal and then they then they hide all the family pictures and they get a white person to pose as the owner and all of a sudden the appraisal goes up. Uh, uh, there's definitely evidence on appraisal bias by neighborhood racial composition. Um, and finally, uh, and, and this is pretty clearly illegal under the Fair Housing Act, yet it just hasn't been given much attention and it is getting much more attention now, including by regulators. Uh, including by HUD in particular, who would be the and the and the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Those are the two key uh, agencies, um, and the Department of Justice. Right, so those agencies are paying more attention, um, but it needs to. You know, we need a stronger implementation of fair lending laws. We need a stronger implementation of the Fair Housing Act, steering people to certain neighborhoods steering people away from certain neighborhoods, but also the down payment assistance we talked about. Um, there, there is provision in federal law to create um, credit initiatives by banks or by quasi-governmental nonprofits to target lending credit mortgage credit and down payment assistance to folks of color. You know, folks have said, oh, you couldn't do that. That that would be unconstitutional or, but there, there is some specific provision in the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that would enable that and it hasn't been used. Um, so I think there's a lot more that we can do proactively, both on the enforcement side of fair lending law, but on the kind of CRA uh, proactive lending front. Um, and, 
you know, the other thing is some programs are just de facto um, targeted either spatially or because they focus on low wealth people like many habitat operations will end up, you know, um, benefiting black home buyers at a very high rate, even if they don't target it specific, you know, explicitly. So, um, you know, Atlanta Habitats chapter, uh, you know, is, is going to disproportionately benefit black home buyers. Um, so foundations that want, or corporations that want to work on the racial wealth gap could say, okay, we're going to give money to this Habitat chapter and this Habitat chapter and this, right? They can, they can support it that way. Um, so I think there's all kinds of tools that are not, that either are being used, but could be used more or could be used much more aggressively. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take your soundbite right there. I'm going to use that for fundraising purposes because, because um, it's funny, it, Dan, when we were doing our study with Georgia Tech, I got a, I got a phone call uh, one afternoon and Kennesaw State was actually doing the, the polling of Habitat homeowners uh -huh. uh, for the study. And I got a call from our researcher at Tech and she said, hey, Ryan, I think we I think we we have a problem here. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, we've conducted 300 interviews so far and overwhelmingly um, when we do the, the demographic data, most of the folks we're interviewing, like 75% are single black women with kids. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, I said, have we made a mistake on our, our sampling? Like, is, is this thrown off? I said, no, I mean, that's a big, big part of what we do at Habitat because, you know, it's not intentionally, right? We don't, we don't right. set out, but, but the reality is, is there's an enormous wealth cap here in this country that is based largely on race. Right. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things that ends up happening. And so I, I appreciate your plug there that, you know, those uh, industries that want to help alleviate that wealth gap would do well to, to assist yeah. the it, no, I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I've said this other places, I think anybody who wants to support um, home ownership efforts should expect, should ask for racial demographics of, you know, the nonprofit that they're asking, not just income, but also mm -hmm. race. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing prohibiting that. Mm -hmm. Private donors can give to whatever groups they want to. Mm -hmm. But it's a way that they can have particular impact. And yeah, it, that number doesn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it, it goes from beyond simply the, the lip service, right? I mean, it goes right. into a very practical way to improve the lives of communities of color. Right. And, um, you know, it, what you were kind of saying earlier is we've got some great tools in the tool chest, but we're just not implementing them correctly. I mean, is that correct? I mean, is that a sort of simple? Yeah, practice? no, I think especially on the regulatory side, um, there has, I've read, I wrote a book, one of my, my second book was on kind of the history and policy of the Community Reinvestment Act and fair lending law. And really, I can point to just a few years um, in the history of those laws, which date back to 68 and 77. Mm -hmm. um, only a few years where I thought enforcement was kind of vigorous. Um, and 
it wasn't, you know, the, interestingly, I would, I would say one period was uh, starting in about 1988 when the Fair Housing Act was amended, but also fair lending laws and fair lending lawsuits became more popular. Um, and then again, in, in, in the early 90s, 95, when CRA was kind of revised, but those are kind of the two periods um, and, and they faded. Um, and we really haven't gone back to, you know, what, because we actually did see some improvements in access to credit and in home ownership. They weren't tremendous, but they were modest um, and they weren't done with subprime loans, right? They were done with, you know, responsible mortgages, but also with down payment assistance and other things. And we have good evidence that down payment assistance uh, can be done very responsibly and is highly effective. So I think, uh, you know, and we have evidence on habitat programs and we have evidence on lots of other things. So, yeah, I, I do think uh, on the enforcement side, um, we've had a kind of a regulatory capture problem where, you know, uh, regulators are just, you know, they hire bankers and that's not necessarily the people that are going to be the most uh, enforcement prone. Um, and then you have political interference, that kind of thing. So I think we can do much more there. I think we have this uh, special purpose credit uh, program under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that hasn't been used. Um, but I also think we need more federal support, more federal resources. So some of it is yes, existing, but other is no, we need more federal, federal resources, money. So I, I'd like to follow this line of thought. And since, you know, since you're a public financing and housing finance uh, guru in, in this respect, I, I want to ask you a question, very habitat targeted, but I think you're the perfect person to ask this to. Um, you know, habitat, we have this kind of strange model, right? Because we self-finance the houses that we're building overwhelmingly. Yes. That's what we do. And so you find yourself or at least what we've really found ourselves in is this tricky situation where particularly as not just rents increase, but property values are increasing, it's becoming far more challenging for us, right? Because the house that we used to build for a hundred thousand now, we have to spend 140 on just to get land and that sort of thing. And yes. so we've been, we've been trying to find different ways to finance our projects. And we've, we've, we've done some things with uh, banks like zero equivalent loan programs um, trying to make better use of some of those, uh, you know, things from the federal home loan bank, like on down payment assistance, like what they use. Right. But I, I'm curious to know, because, you know, we at Habitat Georgia, we're actually working on getting our CDFI certification. Oh, and okay. and, it, it, and it's because of this, we want to find and yeah. leverage those resources. Right. What are, what are your thoughts on that as far as the need for that, particularly like in the Habitat space? No, I, I that's a good question. Um, Obviously, getting land cheap uh, is, <laughs> right. I know, uh, that's a kind of local, very localized, yeah. right? Sometimes working with land banks around the state, that kind of thing is, mm -hmm. is, is going to be important. And getting those land banks to be more productive. Mm. Um, we've had a lot of problems in Georgia with that. Yeah. Um, so getting, you know, more tax delinquent land into kind of the habitat pipeline. Mm. Um Another, another though is uses. I, I like the CDFI. I mean, obviously, 
CDFI money has been used for homeownership. I mean, self-help and other folks have, have done a good bit of that. Um, and maybe, maybe using it both for your own writing down interest rates or providing down payment assistance directly. Um, the other possibility, which I, you guys have probably thought of, which I know Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership here in Atlanta has used is new markets tax credit programs used for some uh, purchasing homes uh, out of foreclosure and other ways um, and being able to write down the costs basically through that program. Um, but if this down payment assistance money comes through, I would definitely, you know, Think about how you all can, whether that can be combined with self-financing or whether you end up working with conventional institutions, lenders to maybe leverage some of that somehow. Mm -hmm. I haven't thought enough about it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah, it's still, I guess, very up in the air, right? That's, uh, right, right. You know, um, so I, I'd, I'd like to kind of take this about the new market tax credit because it, it's interesting. We, we do have habitats that are using those. Uh -huh. um, not so much here in Georgia. I think we've been a little bit slower to adopt them. And I'm curious, because I, I, I'm going to speak from my own position of ignorance. I've read about them, but not extensively as I should. Um, you, you know, familiarize the folks who are listening to what the new market tax credit system is. Well, it's a very complicated program. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, it kind of makes the low-income housing tax credit look simple. Um, but the basic idea is you develop this Community develop it, community development entity, and you compete for these tax credits, which then you can apply to different projects. So it's not like the long-term housing tax credit where every project competes on its own. These entities, which are often bank affiliates or could be a nonprofit, um, a lot of the big national nonprofits have them, but it could also be a statewide organization, um, can then get this tax credit money and then a habitat chapter could go to that CDE and get an investment to you know help buy some land or build some houses. Um, there would be some return on that, but the tax credit would leverage that return so that the return could be quite low. So it could be a of you know one percent loan or something theoretically um, to a project, um, but there would usually be a return. I have not looked into the particular. I I think I did hear that some other habitats had done this, but I haven't. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked up, and I don't know the details of how A and D P has structured theirs. Mm -hmm. That might be a good model to look at. I think it's been pretty effective. Well, I'll tell you, um, I'm sitting here writing as you're talking because you've got me interested. I, the The research that I've done, like I said, has been very preliminary, and it's exactly what you said. What I was saying, well, this is a remarkably complex program. It's not, it's not straightforward. No, uh, <laughs> and and here's the other thing: it it probably won't work for your smaller, right affiliates, right? right. It, it's probably would be geared towards, you know, like the. Uh, Atlanta's um, was a Browns Mill development, something right. you know, sizable, new construction of 
good number of homes. Right. Yeah. A, a larger development. Yeah. Larger um, development. Which I, I have to say, that's one thing that I've really um, been trying to encourage more and more affiliates to look at doing um, is this larger developments because to back things up to our original conversation, you know, when you run the, the numbers here in the state of Georgia and the amount of need that there is, yeah. um, you know, I feel like if we're not producing these sort of larger developments and serving more and more families every year, we're really just, uh, you know, basically not even competing against the natural entropy that right. seems, seems, right. seems to occur. So that's a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wish it wasn't a good word. <laughs> I, yeah. I yeah. describe it that way, but, um, you know, it, it's just such a interesting space that we're operating in here. Um, so I, I appreciate you kind of explaining that because I have had several folks ask about that. Um, so I apologize for the thunder, but I can't kind of uh, control that. Is, is, is that on your end? I, I couldn't. Uh, it is. It is. It, it, it's hard to tell where I'm at. It's not uncommon for us to get thunder on bright, sunshiny days. Okay. So, um, like that old uh, Credence song, I guess. Um, but so you know, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time here. I'm just curious to know, Dan, kind of going forward, I'm not going to ask you to be a, a sage and predict where we're going to go in the housing space, but where would you, I don't want to say where would you like to see us go, but where do you anticipate that we are going to be moving? And, and is that a positive thing, negative thing? And, and how do we, if it is negative, counteract it? And if it's positive, how do we term exploit it, but at least put it to good use and make it even more powerful and impactful? Um, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, all the things we talked about in terms of what we need to do, the we, we fundamentally need federal resources. We also need more state resources. The state of Georgia does almost nothing in terms of affordable housing. It, it has a low-income housing tax credit supplement, um, which that's it. That's all it does. Um, other than distribute federal money, um, and other states that are as that are as big as Georgia, especially with a major center of wealth, which is Atlanta, um, they often have state resources for affordable housing. So that needs to happen. Um, but I just fear worsening inequality on the housing front and worsening instability. Um, because prices and rents are going up, incomes, uh, yes, we have more high-income people in Metro Atlanta, but that's pretty much it in the state, um, and yet we still have lots of low-income people everywhere, um, Atlanta and the rest of the state, and yet land values are increasing in most places in the state, or or even where there's where they're flat, rents are increasing still, right? So because how because it's not just land values for rents, it's operating costs, right? So uh, we just need more resources. Uh, we do need it to be easier to build in some places. We need to worry about zoning, although I think that's more of an issue in Metro Atlanta than lots of other places. Um, but yeah, we need we need more we need more uh, state and federal resources. I think the wealthier localities 
including the city of Atlanta, should be spending more money themselves. But I think mm. for lots of smaller cities, that's not going to happen. Right, right. Well, Dan, I, I got to say, I've, I know it's been, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you here and, and hearing your perspective on these things. Um, you know, I just want to say again, thanks for your time today. Thanks for being willing to offer your expertise and thanks for what you do in the space. I mean, especially doing the research. I love the fact that we have individuals that are committed to putting empirical data out there that is peer reviewed, that is solid, that we can, you know, we in the, the housing space can then glean from and say, okay, look, the researchers have shown this. We know this to be true. We're not relying right. on anecdotal evidence. There is some hard and fast data. So thank you for what you do. And uh, I hope, you know, I really have appreciated your, your wealth of information today. Well, thank you and all the Habitat folks. Um, I mean, uh, I, I got to get in a push for my daughter. She started a Habitat chapter at our high school. She's now out of and finishing college. But, uh, you know, she she kind of heard about Habitat when she was in junior high and she, you know, got interested. So I, I've been a big Habitat fan. Good number of my students work for either local Habitats or Habitat International. So I'm a big fan of all your work. Well, that, that's awesome. I have to ask, so where, where did she uh, start that high school chapter? What was that? Yeah, Decatur High School. Decatur High School. Yeah. Awesome. Well, please tell her thank you. Sure. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, it's always great when you hear about young people who, uh, you know, understand the value of housing and want to yeah. get involved. So, um, well, again, thank you so much. Uh, be safe up there with the thunder and lightning. Yeah, yeah. sorry about that. Out. I no, can only no. control so many things. <laughs> no, no, no I, I hear you, my friend. Well, I'll tell you where I'm at. It's been so dry. I would be, I'm begging for thunderstorms. Oh, here. well, good luck. <laughs> yeah. We have had no shortage of rain lately. Oh, well, it's, it's been rough here. It's been rough here. Yeah. So, well, look, I hope you have a great rest of the week. And again, thanks okay. for your time. Okay. You too. All right. Take Dan. care. All right. Bye now.